Father, it's good to be in the house of the Lord uh, together this morning. And we're reminded, Lord, this is not a place that your, your presence uniquely occupies, but you occupy your people. You reside within us. And so when we gather together, there is a special encounter with the presence of the living God because your church, your people have gathered together. We're thankful for that. Uh, Lord, thank you for the worship um, that we have, the musical worship we've been able to engage in this morning. And I pray that as we continue through the service, as we, as we study together, Lord, as we serve one another, as we listen to each other and greet one another, as we give our, our tithes and offerings, Lord, as, as we go through this whole service this morning, I pray, Lord, that everything would be an act of worship, that we would set you first and foremost in our minds that we would honor and affirm you for who you are, that we would rejoice in the goodness of our God. Lord, give us attentiveness now as we go to your word, as we study, as we prepare ourselves for the book of Zechariah and what you would say to us through it. Um, thank you for the privilege of being your sons and daughters and gathering together this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, our family's just getting back to town uh, from our trip uh, down to San Diego. I told you about this. You all, if you remember, first service booed and second service hissed as I told you about our trip down to uh, sunny San Diego. It was wonderful. Thanks for asking. <clears throat> and I did, uh, you know, get our mission accomplished. I had a little bit of a sunburn going, and so that was great. Um, as we were going down, though, we had to fly separately. We, we booked our tickets the way most Alaskans do. We used miles and a companion voucher. I think we got three tickets with miles, and we got all the way down there for the price of one ticket and a companion voucher. It was great. That's how we roll, Fairbanks. The problem was we had to separate and go on two different itineraries. And so Amy and Eleanor, we gave the really nice itinerary, the good flight, you know, straight out of Fairbanks to Seattle and then straight on to San Diego. And Aiden and Gus and I, well, we bit the bullet. We took the ugly itinerary. And I think it was, you know, Fairbanks, Seattle, Portland, San Diego. Not too bad, but, you know, one extra stop. And we touched down in, um, the guys and I touched down in Seattle. And we had a bit of a layover there. And um, I walked up to the counter and kind of looked at the, uh, the gate there. And, and uh, I thought, oh, we've got more time than I expected to have this morning. I thought we only had like a 30-minute labor. It looks like we've got about an hour and a half. And so we went off and had breakfast in a leisurely way and just kind of dumb and happy walking around the airport. And I thought, well, we better get back in plenty of time so we don't miss our flight. I got back to the gate to realize I had made a mistake when we landed there, and I had not changed my watch. I did not move it forward an hour. And so I'm looking at the gate thinking that we're here easily an hour before our flight's going to leave, and it's saying, you know, our flight's supposed to leave at 7 or whatever, and it's saying 7.02 on the screen, and I'm looking at it like, I don't understand what happened here. What did I do wrong? And then it occurred to me, and I asked the gal at the gate, is this plane already left? And she said, yeah, it sure did. Are you the Johns? <laughs> like, yeah, and uh, you missed your flight. Oh, great. So we ended up in what I think is one of the, you know, seven layers of hell, standby. <laughs> Anybody ever flown standby before? Have you ever flown standby non-electively? Do you know what I mean? When you're put on standby. This, with children, thank you. That's, that's exactly right. This is where we were. 
So I've got my boys with me, and we're supposed to be rendezvousing with Amy and Eleanor down in San Diego at a specific time, and then my folks are going to pick us up, and I have just messed up the whole schedule. Everything is off, and, and I'm talking to them at the counter, but what can we do to sort of rectify this? And they're giving me really scary scenarios like, well, there's a plane leaving at 11 tonight with seats on it, and you could get there tomorrow, or you could leave tomorrow. And I'm thinking, I have just wrecked the whole front end of our vacation because I didn't change my watch. So anyways, we sat there on standby. I had Aiden and Gus with their Seattle Seahawks hats on, you know, really standing in standby, looking forlorn. (laughs) I was looking for some sympathy. And we watched three flights leave without us. And it was horrible. I'm thinking, I have just messed the whole thing up, and I, I, you know, I can't fix this. And finally, the last flight that was going to leave Seattle that would get us to Portland on time to catch the last flight out of Portland to get us to Seattle that, that day, we, we caught it. We got on there. We were the last three people on there. And um, so a little shout out to Deb at the counter at C5, wherever you are, Deb. <laughs> Way to go. <clears throat> they got us on the flight. And here's the thing. Ultimately, we got down to San Diego right on time, right on schedule. It's exactly when we were supposed to all along, except in that intervening time, you know, when we were on standby, all bets were off. And who knew? And it was a scary, frustrating time. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, Lord, I think you do these things to me for sermon illustrations, (laughs) so I will use it. Um, I think there's a similar reality in life. When we, we look around us, when life doesn't go according to schedule, when it seems like we are off the itinerary that we had for ourselves, or even when cosmically we look around the world and it feels like the world is off the redemptive schedule that we anticipated the Lord had us on, and we can kind of throw up our hands in a frustrated way and, and sort of wonder what is going on. We can, we can get frustrated in this idea of living in the middle between what was expected and the reality that, that we're finding. And again, I think this can happen sort of at a cosmic level, and it can happen at sort of a, a personal level. We look at what God has done for, the, for his people throughout history, and we see his deliverance and his faithfulness to his people. We see, we see the, uh, the rescuing of Israel. We see the promise and the giving of the Messiah We have the scriptures that he's given to us, the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We can look to the past and we can see how God has been faithful to us and to his people. And we read the scriptures and the Spirit brings to mind the promises of the future, right? That Messiah will return again and that he will rule and reign and he will set this world back to rights the way that it should be. And we'll rejoice in his righteous reign. It'll be wonderful. And we look to that in the future. But you and I live in the middle. We live in this world that seems to be on standby. When it feels like we're off schedule. The itinerary that we might have expected is not at all what we see. And it's harder to see the hand of the Lord. It's harder to feel like he is in control. It's harder to feel secure in these times. And I think we need encouragement along the way. The book of Zechariah is just that. From a cosmic level, right now when I look around, some of the frustrations that come come to my mind right off the bat, and I imagine for you as well, 
One of the things that's got me so irritated these days is the emergence of the Islamic State and the atrocities of ISIS. I can't believe what I'm seeing on the news. I can't believe the barbaric acts. And I look at these things, and honestly, the prayer in my own heart recently has been, how long, O oh Lord? How long will you let these things happen? And I will say this just as an aside. I know that what seems like the slowness of the Lord to return is his patience and his love for the lost. And that's amazing to me, that he would allow such atrocities to happen because he longs for people to know him. That's what drives his patience. Nevertheless, I I mean, the the psalmist's prayer, how long, O Lord, I think is a a proper lament these days. Uh, We're just returning from California. So looking around and seeing the condition of our, our, the state of our nation and, and what's going on there, it seems to me that people less and less are turning to the Lord. It seems that more people are giving up their faith or even professing Christians have a very, very shallow, thin faith that is only one bad circumstance away from just being abandoned altogether. That's what I see. I look around and see the moral decline of our nation and the world at large. We live in an age where, this is amazing to me, it is more acceptable Sexual immorality is more acceptable than is a profession of faith. One is celebrated and in fact demanded that the world celebrate it as well. Whereas if you make, an, if you make some kind of public profession or expression of your faith, you're made to feel ashamed. And that's the age that we live in. I know you guys feel that probably even more than I do in your respective work environments. Um, and so when I look around at some of these things, you know, to be honest with me, or honest with you, it doesn't feel to me like we're on some schedule. It doesn't feel like we're on track. I think, Lord, what kind of redemptive program is this? It feels like we're on standby and the itinerary has been dismantled. Um, maybe some of you feel that way more in your personal life. You know, it's not this cosmic level thing, but you just feel it around you as you look at your own family. Uh, Maybe your kids are not walking with the Lord. They've not made choices that you had wished they had made. And they're in a time of rebellion, and it grieves you. Uh, Maybe it's your relationship with your spouse, or maybe they're faltering with the Lord. Maybe you find yourself in a place in life that you did not expect to be. You didn't think it would be like this. The schedule and the map that you had set out for yourself is not where you find yourself. Maybe it's you. Maybe there have been some besetting sins, some temptations that have gotten a hold of your heart. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that Christ is not your primary affection, but something else has taken up first preoccupation with your heart, a bit of an idol or something like that. Maybe the overall feeling that you have right now is that you're living life against the grain. You're sort of living life in the middle between God's faithful past and what you know to be the faithful future, and you're struggling in this mode like you're on standby and you don't know how it's going to turn out. I think every one of us can relate to that kind of feeling. If not at this moment, it won't take long before you do feel that way. Uh, And I find the book of Zechariah to be an incredible encouragement 
to this particular feeling. Overall, it is a message of hope. It is good news. It is encouragement to God's people who feel these, these kinds of feelings. It's a message to uh, Judah at a time when they felt like they were off schedule, when the itinerary that they were expecting, the wheels had fallen off and they were in some other kind of experience. Uh, they had all kinds of disappointing circumstances that were causing to, them to question their covenant relationship with God. It seemed like his blessing was absent or missing or far away or something. They were expected to move back into their beloved city of Jerusalem and to rebuild it and to rebuild the temple. They were expecting Messiah to return and to set up his kingdom and to rule and reign. And that's not what they found. And their circumstances gave them all kinds of questions. In fact, there's a great, <clears throat> there's a great passage in, if you'd open your Bibles to Zechariah. And again, this morning, we're just setting the table. This is one of those background introductory messages. We're just setting the table for next week when we begin to feast on the book. Okay, So we're just getting the place settings out so we're ready to really dig in. But in chapter 4, verse 10, there's this great phrase that, ema- that emerges in the book. And it sort of captures the heart of Judah as they felt about the world around them. It says they felt like they were in a day of small things. Isn't that a great phrase? A day of small things. They had expected great things. Messiah to rule and reign. But this felt like a day of small things. And again, overall, in the midst of all this insecurity that Judah is feeling, Zechariah's message is a message of encouragement, reminding them that God was in control and that he had all things in hand along his right schedule. The genre of the book, as you know, uh, it's prophecy. We've already said that many times here. Let's see if I can get my clicker to work. Mm, there it goes. It was sleeping. Um, it's, it's obviously prophecy and... Um, There's even some subcategories within it, some categories that maybe we haven't run into too much on Sunday mornings, uh, such as uh, apocalyptic symbolism or oracles, which are sort of pronouncements of judgment. So we're going to encounter some wild things here in the book that uh, you might not actually run into a a Sunday morning sermon very often. Um, Zachariah's nickname is the major minor prophet. Isn't that good? The major minor prophet, because... It really, because of its size, it's 14 chapters. It's got a little more to it than some of the other minor prophets. Um, and in typical prophetic fashion, really what it does is it, it gives assurance based on forthcoming events. And that's really what prophecy does. I don't know if you're familiar with sort of the genre of prophecy, but if I could kind of illustrate it, uh, for those of you who like backpacking or hiking or hunting, you know, prophecy is a lot like describing a mountain range. And, and you know when you're hiking or, or doing one of these other activities, you sort of see that first ridge and you get to the top of it thinking you've conquered the mountain and then you realize you're not even close. There's a whole other valley and another ridge. And especially for sheep hunters or whatever, right? You just do this over and over again, the next valley to the next ridge. And prophecy is a lot like that. It speaks about these forthcoming events in sort of a mountain range description. It tells you of the peaks that are out there, but what it doesn't necessarily do is show you the intervening valleys. And so a lot of what we find in this book are these great big promises about what's coming, uh, but it doesn't always identify what happens in between. And so that's definitely uh, one of the things that we find here in the book, and I think that's important to understand about 
uh, about the genre as a whole. Maybe another way to think about it, if I could illustrate it this way, it's, it's maybe the way, the sim- a similar way that we might communicate with our kids. Um, if those of you who have young kids, you know, when you're at the airport and you miss your flight and the kids, your kids ask you, will there be another one? You know, and we have to sort of explain that. Or what does it mean to be on standby? Or how long is two hours? Or, um, you know, what is a roller coaster? Is it scary or is it fun? And our kids have these kinds of questions. And as parents, we try to explain to them and prepare them for the things uh, that are coming. And prophecy is very similar. It is God's way of preparing his children for what's coming. And sometimes the, it's the, the message is assuring and comforting. Other times it's a warning and it's cautionary. And so we find, we find both. I will give you a bit of a caveat here with the book. As with all of scripture, and you need to understand this, this doesn't sound right, but it is. This is not God's word directly to you. This is God's word for us, but it's not written directly to you. And a lot of Christians make that mistake and they go right to the scriptures and they grab a verse as though it was written to Eric Johns in 2015 about life's present circumstances. And we pull it right out of its, its context and we make it apply immediately to us as though that's what it was intended to do. But good Bible reading doesn't do that. And if you take one of those core classes that we have in your handout, you'll see that. Uh, what we need to do is good hermeneutics, good interpretation. We need to see, first of all, what did it mean to the original hearers? We have to ask ourselves these three questions. What was the message to the original hearers? And then secondly, what is the timeless principle? And then thirdly, how is that timeless principle significant to my life? And then we'll be doing good hermeneutics, good interpretation. And we have to do the same with this book as well. So we've got to understand sort of the historical context of this book. What's happening here is Judah, the recipient of this prophetic message, has just been returned to their homeland after 70 years of being deported or being in exile in Babylon. God had judged the nation because of their disobedience and their rebellion, and they're just returning to their homeland. Uh, And what they are returning to, unfortunately, really is the rubbles of their previous home and the rubbles of the temple that they had loved. Imagine coming home from church uh, this morning, going back home and finding that your home had burned down while you were gone and sort of sifting through all of that. That's what Judah is doing. They're returning home to find the rubbles of their, of their beloved city, Jerusalem, and the temple that has been torn down, and they're sort of moving back in. In the first year of their return, they were instructed to rebuild, and they did. They started off well. They rebuilt the altar, and they began to have sacrifices. And then they set the foundations for the temple, and they were on track. And then something happened. The Samaritans came in and attacked them and caused trouble, and they got diverted off of this, uh, this schedule that they were supposed to be on. And what started just as an immediate distraction really held their attention for too long. And they never got on with the rebuilding. And so this project actually sat on hold for over 16 years. Uh, I want to give you some texts that you can, I want you to do your homework this week. One of the things I love about you guys is you have an appetite for the word of God. Uh, At least that's what I'm going to tell you this week, so you'll do your homework. (laughs) 
And so I want to give you some, some passages that you might kind of be studying as you prepare for this. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra uh, really describe uh, sort of historically what's happened here. If you take actually 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and the first six chapters of Ezra, they'll kind of lay the historic backdrop that I've been talking about here. And then also a contemporary of Zechariah, someone who wrote about the same time, uh, was actually Haggai. And Zechariah was the younger guy, and Haggai was the older guy. And if you know anything about old guys, you've got to watch out for them because they don't have anything to lose. They'll just say what they want to say. They're not afraid anymore. Young guys will sort of mince words and be careful, but old guys will just tell you. And Haggai is a little bit like that. And he's a little more blunt in some of his, some of his messages. Um, but overall, what we find is that after 16 years, this temple project was halted. And God's people instead had become preoccupied with self-centered concerns. Their own homes, their own farms, they got on with their own lives. And the fact that the temple had not been rebuilt really was a testimony to how far away from the Lord their heart really was. In fact, one of the commentators that I, I read said it this way, Kaminsky says this, the rubble-strewn temple site was a mute testimony of their neglect. In other words, they had gotten on with other occupations in life, but they had forgotten their first vocation, which was to be worshipers of the transcendent God. Haggai says it this way in chapter one, verse three. It says, then the word of the Lord came through to the prophet Haggai. Is this a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled homes while this house remains in a ruin? Here sat this temple, unbuilt, started but unfinished, in rubbles, still showing the signs of disrepair, and yet their homes were gleaming. It showed that their hearts were first and foremost for themselves and not for the things of God. And this is what both Haggai and Zechariah were challenging them about. Their heart and their actions were not in line with the Lord, and the half-built temple was evidence of their heart. Um, and this was particularly grievous to the Lord because it was for some of these kinds of things that he had judged the previous generation. That's why he destroyed Jerusalem. That's why he destroyed the temple. That's why he took them into exile was to teach him these lessons. And here this first generation out of exile is falling in line with some of the same kinds of sins that had preceded them. The purpose of the book, however, is not just to scold them. In fact, it's, it's really overall, it's a message of hope. Let's see if I can get this to show here. Overall, it's a message of hope, and it's, it's really encouraging spiritual renewal in the people. In fact, next week, we're going to look at this. I love the first six verses of this book are just this beautiful cry of the Lord to his, his people. Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me. And the assurance, I will return to you. And we're going to look at that next week. But it starts really with this, this, this message of spiritual renewal. Let's get your hearts right. Let's start there. And so again, he begins by calling people to repentance, and then he calls them to action, and he encourages their hearts with, with hope for the future. Uh, there are two kind of predominant themes that we can see there. Uh, the, uh, the sort of instructing the people to work on a functional place of worship, 
and that they would have a functional heart of worship. And those are a couple of things that really are, are strong throughout the book. The author of the book, well, we've already mentioned it many times now, Zechariah, uh, that's who it is. And his name actually comes from the Hebrew word zakar, which means to remember, or God remembers. And, uh, and I think it's a very fitting, it's fitting that that's the prophet's name, and it really actually kind of fits the message of the book. Uh, we've talked about this word before, you may not recall it, but zakar is not just mental knowledge, it's not just holding information, but in the Hebrew mindset, it's acting consistent with what you know. So when we read in the Psalms that God remembers our sins no more, it's not that he forgets them. God can't forget something. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But instead, he chooses not to act against us in accordance with our sins. He doesn't remember them against us. And in this instance, it's a positive. It's saying that God is going to act according to Judah in remembrance of his covenant. His deeds are going to resemble what he has promised to them. And so that's, that's a big part of the book as well. Some of the things that we're going to pull out of the book are going to be very theological, right thinking about the Lord. And so we're going to look at the holiness of God. And we're going to look at his righteousness and his grace and his mercy, his faithfulness to his people. We're going to remember that he is, we're going to talk about his hesed love, his loyal love uh, that he does not withhold. We're going to talk about his sovereign control of all things. And that his, his redemptive plan is resilient. We're going to talk about the coming return of the Messiah and his rightful judgment. And, and I found this very interesting. I don't, we often kind of cringe at talking about the judgment of God or the anger of God. And maybe we don't find a lot of comfort in those messages that are especially unpopular in the world today. But let me say this. When we look around us and we see such a world of evil, The future cannot be bright unless the judgment of the Lord falls on those who are rebellious. We want that. We want God's justice. We want him to judge sin. We want him to judge evil. We just don't want him to judge our evil, right? And I hope you've taken refuge in Christ because that is the only refuge that we have. For all sin will be judged. Overall, the message of the book is rich in theology, and it's, it really is a strong encouragement. And I've given you a bit of an outline here. Next week, we're going to look at the first six verses. And then, on uh, the second week, we're going to start what we call the night visions. And there's six chapters of these night visions. There's eight, eight night visions altogether. And that's a particularly difficult part of the book. So I left that for Pastor Adam to do while I'm going to take another trip. So he's going to love to do that. And, uh, and then we move on to these other parts, the four, message, or, uh, four messages and then these last two burdens. So we're going to take six, or five weeks in all to cover, to cover the book. But here's how I want be, you to be preparing yourself. Um, in this next week, uh, a couple of ways, a couple of things that you can be doing. I want to encourage you to start by reading the book. Take the book of Zechariah's 14 chapters, and I challenge you. I dare you to try to read the book all the way through in one sitting. It's 14 chapters, take you about 25, 30 minutes to do. Now I'm going to warn you right at the outset, it's hard. So just, you know, take that excuse, that excuse away. It's hard. And things worth doing are, okay? 
It's hard to understand. The first time through, you're going to be confused. You're going to go, I don't know what's going on here. That's okay. Just let that be your first read. And I would challenge you to see if you can read it five times this week. See if you can get all the way through the book five times. Uh, you read a lot more than that on Facebook, so let me just you know tell you that right now. Uh, and I would say it's harder to understand at times. <laughs> so just read through the book five times. See if you can get a sense of it. Each time you read it through, you'll get a better understanding of, of what's going on. And then I want to challenge you to ask yourself two questions this week in preparation for next week. The first is this. Does God have my whole heart? That's the first question. Does God have my whole heart? And the second question goes along with it, and that's this. If not, what's holding me back? Does God have my whole heart? And if not, what's holding me back? And so I challenge you this week to prepare yourselves and I'm, I'm not going to hide anything from you. What is coming is we find in these first six verses a call from the Lord to his people, return to me and I will return to you. So please read through the book this week. Ask yourself these questions. Does the Lord have my whole heart? And if not, what's holding me back? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So with that, we've done the introduction. The table is set. And we're going to begin feasting next week. Uh, but at this time, we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. And I've asked Pastor Keith if he would lead us this morning. One, because I'm quite sick. Uh, but secondly, as many of you know, Keith's retirement is coming up in short order here. Uh, in fact, um, April 6th will be his last day with us. And so this really is the last time that we will gather together for the Lord's Supper where Keith can lead us. And so I've asked if he would do that. So I want you just to... Enjoy his leadership and his service at this time. It's one of the last times he'll do this for us. Thank you, Keith, for doing that. And, uh, and I want to just bow in prayer as we get ready for that. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We find ourselves uh, in the middle a lot. Seeing your faithfulness in the past, counting on your faithfulness in the future, but maybe wringing our hands in the present moment, wondering where you are and what you're doing. Because on a cosmic level, the world doesn't look in order. In our personal lives, things are out of order and disrepair. Lord, we really want your kingdom. Your kingdom come, Lord. We want you to set up your rule and your reign. We want to see peace and righteousness and order. We want to see life as it was meant to be. And so, Lord, with the psalmist, I cry out, how long, O oh Lord? And, and with the word that the church uttered in centuries past, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But even as we pause now and we reenact the gospel and we remember the first coming of Jesus and the sacrifice of the cross, we're reminded that right in the middle of the ugliest of things, your hand is at work. While they were putting to, geth, putting to death the Son of God, evil men were achieving the redemptive plan of God. 
So we trust you, Lord. We trust you and we remind ourselves of your goodness and your providence and your care and your wise plan. And we're thankful for this. So as we come to the table, we remember that you have this all well in hand. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you have saw fit to draw a rebellious lot like us back to yourself. We love you and we praise you. In your son's name, amen.